Welcome to Madison's Notes, the official podcast of Princeton University's James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. I'm your host, Nino Scalia. Our website is jmp.princeton.edu, and our Twitter handle is at Madison Program. It's great to have you with us. Hello and welcome back to Madison's Notes. I'm your host, Nino Scalia, and today is an especially exciting and nerve-wracking episode as we're joined by my former boss, Marshall Billingsley. Marshall Billingsley has held many important positions in the U.S. government, including most recently the position of Special Presidential Envoy for Arms Control at the U.S. Department of State and Assistant Secretary for Terrorist Financing at the U.S. Department of the Treasury. He has also served as Deputy Undersecretary of the Navy, as an Assistant Secretary General of NATO, and much else. He's currently a Senior Fellow at the Hudson Institute and joins us today to talk about nuclear weapons, Ukraine, and more. Marshall Billingsley, boss, welcome to Madison's Notes. Nino, it's great to be with you. Thanks for inviting me. And uh, uh, I must say, uh, it was just a real pleasure working with you. Uh, as my principal speechwriter, uh, in fact, um, at a time when uh, when we really began to see a lot of the threat contours that have now uh, emerged and and uh, and have emerged with a vengeance under President Biden. Well, I, I learned a lot, enjoyed it even more, uh, and I'm looking forward to this conversation. And in a minute, I want to turn to the subjects I just mentioned. But before we do that, nuclear arms control terrorist financing, special operations, and low-intensity conflict, one of those positions I didn't have time to mention. How would you end up in this line of work? Do, do you just love weapons? <laughs> well, you know, the uh, a great part of my professional career serving in government has been completely oriented around uh, avoiding uh, the use of weaponry uh, to solve our problems or uh, using special tactics and techniques to try to ensure that our, our enemies and our adversaries uh, are unable to harm the American people and to, uh, to damage our friends and our allies. Uh, so I'd like to think that, uh, uh, in fact, uh, uh, it's, it's the avoidance of armed conflict that, that much of my career has been focused on. Yeah, let's talk about an armed conflict that we're all hoping to avoid right now, and that's Ukraine. Russia is amassing troops on the border. Now, whether this is an elaborate bluff or with the intention of actually invading Ukraine, only Vladimir Putin seems to know. Can you set the stage for us? What's going on over there and how did we get there? Well, the interesting thing about the situation we're in, as you probably know better than most, the demands that the Russians are making of the Biden administration are not new. In fact, nearly every one of those demands uh, that they have issued uh, were, were issued to me, to us, uh, in the Trump administration uh, by Sergei Ryabkov, the deputy foreign minister. Uh, and we categorically rejected uh, these demands across the board uh, for what they were, uh, which is uh, a Russian effort to divide NATO, a Russian effort to um, gain the advantage in every possible way uh, in terms of military, uh, the ability to coerce Europe with military force and now with energy policy. 
and it's noteworthy that the Russians didn't try the, the coercive tactics. They didn't try the bullying uh, under the Trump administration because they knew very well that uh, President Trump wouldn't tolerate it. Unfortunately, President Biden uh, has signaled nothing but uh, consistent weakness, feebleness, uh, an inability to recognize leverage in negotiations and in dealing with these foreign leaders. Uh, the bungling, the horrific bungling of Afghanistan and the way that he treated our allies, the way they have capitulated to Iran at the negotiating table in Vienna, all of these things have snowballed into the full-blown crisis we have now in Europe as Russia clearly seems set and intent on further invasion of Ukraine. And it really is that signal, signaling of weakness that I believe has brought us to where we are on the brink of, of a major armed conflict in Europe. Ukraine in NATO. Good idea, but impossible. Uh, good idea and possible. Bad idea and impossible. What do you think? Good idea and possible, in fact, and quite possible. Uh, in fact, I think the current situation shows why an alliance of democracies, a uh, defensive alliance of democracies is so important. Mm. Uh, I was at NATO, as you mentioned, as the Assistant Secretary General, when one of the earliest pushes to bring them into the membership action plan, uh, which is a, a roadmap for eventual membership, was proposed. Uh, and uh, unfortunately uh, was blocked even at that time back in the early 2000s by the Germans, among others. So it, it's been a, uh, a long journey, uh, but the road, it, the door is not closed. The, the pathway remains open. Uh, I'm very pleased to see uh, both NATO unified on this topic, as well as the, the position the Biden administration has taken, which is to reject Russia's efforts to close that open door policy. The current standoff in Ukraine, it seems almost impossible to get a clear sense of what's going on. President Biden, we hear reports of a phone call in which President Biden tells the president of Ukraine, this is imminent. Ukraine will fall. And the president responds, Zelensky responds, that's not true. You need to calm down. How do you expect we'll see this resolved? And in that resolution, what role do you expect or what role should America play? Well, uh, you know, I think that uh... I think it's it's quite possible for both presidents to be right in their in their reactions. I think President Biden uh, letting the Ukrainian president know that the United States believes an invasion is imminent um, is probably the correct uh, thing for him to to make clear. But I also think that President Zelensky um, is well justified. In, in indicating that this is not helpful and that, uh, that by stirring up uh, the anxiety of the general populace in, in Ukraine, um, we're making potentially matters worse. Um, that said, I think that the, uh, the disposition of forces uh, arrayed all around Ukraine, uh, inside Belarus facing Ukraine, inside Russia proper, uh, with the irregular warfare uh, units in the Donbass, the so-called little green men, the units that have flowed into Crimea, the additional uh, uh, naval presence. Uh, and now we see the kind of logistical movements by the Russians, such as the movement of blood bank um, reserves, medical 
reserves to the front lines are all highly indicative of a mass invasion uh, that, that is planned. So I really do fear for the worst. If disaster here is to be averted, the Biden administration urgently needs to, to cause Vladimir Putin to revisit his conclusion that Joe Biden is a weak president who will not stand up to aggression. That is, that is the most crucial thing they can do at this juncture. Uh, unfortunately, I see too little too late in that respect. But there are things that we can and should do, and the administration is doing some of them, um, but though not all of them. Yeah. In particular, uh, I'm gratified that finally uh, the United States has begun to flow surplus weaponry and excess existing defense articles out of our, out of our stockpiles to the Ukrainians. And it's good that uh, they furnished them with a couple hundred Javelin anti-armor missiles. But again, it's too few. Uh, the Russians have massed more than 1,200 tanks and far more armored vehicles on the border. It's, it's really fantastic that other NATO allies have stepped up, in particular the Baltic nations, who lived under the jackboot of the Soviets and the Russians for, for years, and they know what it's like to be uh, occupied. Uh, and they have been taking Stinger missiles out of their inventories and shipping those um, uh, and, and so on. So, and the United Kingdom above all has been uh, daily flights of C-17s and other, other cargo aircraft in uh, <clears throat> with uh, shorter range anti-tank weapons and so on. The Ukrainians need this military assistance and they need military advisors. We do have some special forces in the country, US special forces, as well as allied special operations forces, but they're too few in number. And so the, the, the Biden administration really urgently needs to deploy additional Green Berets. They specialize in these insurgency tactics, and that's exactly what the Ukrainians are going to need. Uh, can the Ukrainians stop a, this, this kind of overwhelming force that, that Russia's built up? No. But can they drag this out? Can they bleed the Russians and make them pay for this aggression? Absolutely. Uh, and the, the, the faster and the greater the quantities of military equipment that we deliver to the Ukrainians and train them on how to use, the greater the chance that they won't actually have to use that weaponry in an invasion. I also believe uh, very much that the administration should weeks ago have made very, very precisely clear to Putin what the financial and economic consequences to Russia will be mm. if he invades. They've been too vague on this. Now, <clears throat> I know having served at the Treasury uh, as, as, as the Assistant Secretary for these kinds of sanctions issues, that traditionally the United States likes to keep its cards close. I think in this case, this is an exceptional circumstance and we ought to be very clear about what the United States is prepared to do in the form of sanctions on Russia for, for yet more invasion of Ukrainian territory. You said a little bit there about some of our NATO allies stepping up. I, I want to key in on that for a second. And, and I'm, I'm going to pull this from the NATO website. Quote, the combined wealth of the non-U.S. allies measured in GDP exceeds that of the United States. However, non-U.S. allies together spend less than half of what the United States spends on defense, end quote. And last I checked, 
only 10 of the 30 NATO members are meeting that agreed upon 2% threshold of GDP. It seems like our European allies simply aren't doing their part in providing for their own defense. Is, is that right or is that unfair? That is right with respect to <clears throat> maybe two thirds of the alliance. But, oh, by the way, the countries I just mentioned, particularly those uh, who know what it was like to be occupied by the Soviets. These are our allies, such as Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, Poland, Romania, these countries. They're the ones who actually are committing uh, large portions of their national GDP to their defense, and they're to be commended for it. There are other allies, in particular the Germans, uh, who not only are not committed and are free riders in terms of collective defense and contribute very little, frankly, uh, to the military capabilities, the defensive capabilities of the allies, but in this particular instance have worked at cross purposes against the United States, the United Kingdom and others, and have made the situation far worse. The Germans <clears throat> deliberately have allowed Vladimir Putin to largely finish construction on a natural gas pipeline called Nord Stream 2 which is entirely designed to bypass Ukraine to allow Russia to use energy as a, as a weapon against Ukraine by not having to pay transit fees, and ultimately to threaten the shutoff of natural gas as a leverage tool over, over Europe. And this is the Germans deliberately pushing their energy interests ahead of democratic principles and, and, and the freedom of, of freedom-loving people in, in Central and Eastern Europe. Sort of a Gordian knot of a question here, but I'm going to cut it this way. Some people will look at what's going on in Ukraine and say, you know what? It's just none of our concern. We can't afford to worry about what's going on in Ukraine, especially as we see China growing stronger, growing more belligerent. We need to be focused over there. We need to pivot toward China and just let Europe go. How would you respond to that? Well, I think, first of all, that, that would be a disaster, but let me explain why. Sure. <clears throat> the, um, the United States and the American people should have every reason to be concerned about what's happening in Ukraine. I will stipulate at the outset that Ukraine is not a NATO ally. Uh, they're not an ally. Uh, and therefore, we are not committed to spend American lives in defense of that country, nor do I believe uh, we should commit large numbers of forces. I, I do believe the Green Berets this is why we have them. They specialize in this. And, and that kind of training capability um, is, is the kind of capability that I think we should commit. But, but why would we do that? I think anybody who is concerned about inflation in the United States and the fact that gas prices and prices in general are skyrocketing under Biden, so-called Biden inflation, uh, should be very worried about the possibility that Russia, one of the world's largest gas producers, is about to invade another country and that the sanctions that will be imposed on their economy as a consequence and must be imposed on their economy as a consequence, will, we will feel the effect of that at the pump. But even more to the point, Ukraine is, talk about uh, store shelves in our grocery stores that are empty. You see these photographs on the internet all the time. Ukraine is commonly referred to as the breadbasket of, of Europe. They're one of the world's largest producers of wheat and potatoes and tomatoes. They're one of the most important mineral producing countries in the world. A lot of this, the items that go into our everyday household uh, uh, 
uh, products, our, our washing machines, our irons, our, you know, are things that uh, are based on minerals that Ukraine mines and produces and sells, things like titanium and graphite and iron ore. Um, you will see an immediate effect on prices as Russia occupies, as those fields, as those farming, uh, as those farming fields go empty, as 60 million Ukrainians flee and create a refugee crisis in Europe, uh, as the mines go uh, dormant, uh, it, it'll be it's supply and demand, and there'll be a lot less supply for continued rising demand, and prices will go up even more. So there's an economic, a self-interest economically for us to want to avoid this. But I think it runs even deeper than that. <clears throat> if you look back at, at how Ronald Reagan repeatedly referred to America being a shining city upon a hill. And of course, what he was referencing was the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, but in essence, what he's talking about is, is still as valid today as it was then. America has always served as a beacon uh, to guide freedom-loving, freedom-seeking peoples around the world. And the idea that we would stand by as a democratic nation like Ukraine uh, is threatened by a dictatorial, truly evil regime in the form of Russia, a regime that uses chemical weapons to poison dissidents, that throws journalists out of fifth floor windows, uh, that shuts down freedom of speech, that shuts down radio and television stations, uh, that we would stand by as, as this regime menaces a European country. Uh, I, I can't fathom that we would do that. And I've been greatly disappointed of late in the commentary of some uh, who argue from an isolationist standpoint that we've got other issues, bigger fish to fry. Let's look inward and let's simply <clears throat> leave the Europeans to their own devices. That I feel is not what we're about. It's certainly not what I believe the Republican Party is about uh, in terms of our national security thought process. And, uh, and I believe we should support uh, the president in the actions that he's taking to date, and we should press him to do even more. Kind of a screwball of a question here. Uh, and, and I think you hinted a bit of an answer when you, when you referred to the Russian Federation as a dictatorial, truly evil regime. Some people will look at China and they'll say, this is the threat of the century. This is an existential threat to the United States and to Western civilization. Shouldn't Russia be an ally? Shouldn't Russia look at China and say, they're a threat to us as well? We'd rather a world in which the United States is the hegemon than a world in which China is. What do you think of that? Is Russia a potential ally in that struggle? I think down the road, yes, <clears throat> but not in the immediate future. You see, the Russians and the Chinese have very few things in common, but one thing they do have in common is they're both dictatorships. And they both despise our democratic, free market, capitalist way of life. And they would like to see that eroded. They'd like to see public trust in government degraded. It's why they use these internet troll farms and they try to seed dissension and hate everywhere they can. Yeah. And so they have, they've made common cause together in an effort to really undermine democracies around the world, not just in the United States, but across Europe and, and in Latin America too. Uh, and so I believe that, that that cooperation 
between these two countries will intensify. Now, that said, as, as I repeatedly pointed out to the deputy foreign minister in our negotiations, there's about 150 million Russians. And there's what, 1.5 billion Chinese? And one of the things about the Chinese Communist Party is that they have picked territorial disputes with just about every country that they have borders with. They've attacked the Indians across the glaciers. They have constructed these huge artificial islands in the South China Sea and then put military on there and said, well, they now control this, this, uh, this patch of the ocean. Uh, they've, uh, they have claims on Japanese islands. They even, believe it or not, they have a territorial dispute with Kim Jong-un and the North Koreans. <laughs> And when you look at actually at, at the Chinese view of history, there are huge chunks of Russia, of Eastern Russia, all the way up to Vladivostok, where the Chinese Communist Party claims that they were unfairly given away under coercive measures under various treaties over time. Hmm. And the Russians really should pay attention to that. And, and, and frankly, I think they do, but they're much more fixated right now on restoring the Soviet sphere of influence in Europe, in degrading NATO, and in pushing West through Ukraine. I don't think we'll ever have another chance on this podcast to talk about nuclear weapons. So, so I want to take full advantage of it. Nuclear weapons. Who are the major players and what sort of nuclear capabilities do our adversaries have today? Well, the, the, uh, the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, uh, which uh, sets the international principle and the, and the expectation uh, that, we once, that we will at some point in the future hopefully arrive at a, a, at a nuclear weapons-free world, uh, recognizes five countries as possessing nuclear weapons. Um, there are, of course, additional countries who lied. They ratified the NPT and then cheated on it. North Korea, I just mentioned, is an example. Uh, Iran is another example of a country that swore to never have these weapons and clearly is clandestinely uh, developing the ability to build these things and so on. Um, but if one thinks really about, okay, with, what, who are these five countries? Well, it's the United States, it's the United Kingdom, it's France, uh, it's Russia, and it's China. Now, the Brits and the French have historically kept very small numbers of warheads uh, deployed uh, mostly with their submarines. Uh, it's really been uh, the United States and uh, Russia, particularly the, the Soviet Union, that during the Cold War, uh, because of Russian escalation and, and Russian or Soviet uh, massive increases in their weapon stockpiles, that the United States um, really had to build up and, and, uh, and ma maintain a degree of deterrence in terms of numbers with the Russians. And that is uh, the case today, although the, the overall size of these inventories has come way down, certainly with the US. Now, what Russia has been doing though, is they've been building all kinds of nuclear weapons that, are, that do not go on these intercontinental huge missiles. They, landmines and artillery shells and torpedoes and shorter range systems, but they're building a lot of those. So Russia is arms racing uh, on its own uh, uh, with all of these shorter range weapon systems. And that is 
really a concern that, that we have, I think we should have with regard to the current crisis that they've created with Ukraine, because some of those dual capable missile systems, these shorter range systems, are ones that they have now deployed very close to the borders. Uh, China, though, is, is really going to completely upend the apple cart, so to speak, when it comes to the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty and the steady progress that we've made in reducing the danger of, of nuclear arms races, because China is in an all-out nuclear arms race. Uh, they have engaged in a secret uh, crash nuclear buildup that is now set to um, at least quadruple the size of their nuclear arsenal. We're talking about uh, ICBM fields, that the massive ICBM fields, more ICBMs uh, to go on the ground than we have, for instance, hmm. bigger ICBMs that can carry more warheads than our Minuteman three can carry. I'm talking about maybe 10 warheads on each missile as opposed to today, the one or maybe three that, that, we, that we use uh, as a deterrent. So the nuclear danger is definitely escalating because of Russian buildup of these short range systems and the across the board Chinese buildup. Since the Cold War, the conventional wisdom seems to have gone something like this. You know, nuclear weapons are absolutely devastating. And those who have them can deliver a nuclear strike even after absorbing a strike, the capacity to deliver this second strike. You take these two facts together and we have mutually assured destruction. As a result, nuclear warfare is off the table, or at least thought to be. Is there still truth to this doctrine if there ever was, or is nuclear war a real possibility here in the 21st century? Well, I would say it's, it's, very, much, it's very much a real possibility. Uh, the United States never subscribed to mutually assured destruction as a, as a moral uh, matter. Um, the goal, and I really reject those who, who, who say that, uh, you know, why do we invest in a nuclear deterrent? We, we're never going to use it. The truth of the matter is that we use our nuclear weapons every single day to mm. deter aggression. And since the advent of the nuclear age, uh, we have not seen another world war. Um, localized conflicts for sure, but nothing uh, on the scale of a, a world war. Unfortunately, we have two things that are now happening that are, I believe, increasing the danger. Now, the first is that the Russians have adopted this crazy doctrine. They call it escalate to win. And the idea is that if they get into a shooting match with NATO, uh, they would use nuclear weapons first hmm. because they believe that NATO would fold its cards, capitulate, and the Russians would walk away occupying whatever it is that they they want to occupy. I think that's a, a profound misjudgment or, or misread of the alliance's determination, but it is Russian doctrine. Even more concerning is that it's not at all clear what the Chinese doctrine is. The Chinese uh, like to claim that they have a no first use doctrine, but that is, that is absolutely false. Uh, that is something they just throw out there uh, uh, as, they, as, they masquerade, uh, as they masquerade around. Um, but the Chinese don't have any risk reduction experience. They don't have any experience with, uh, with hotlines between nations. Uh, and there's a very great potential as China continues to build not just these ICBMs I mentioned, but they've got lots of mobile long-range missiles. 
They're building lots of submarines and, and, and submarine launched ballistic missiles with nuclear warheads. They're building their own version of a stealth bomber to carry nuclear weapons. There's a, a, a great chance for miscalculation hmm. on the part of the Chinese. And so, Nino, as you know, that was a major focus of ours was to say, look, uh, if China is doing this in terms of arms control, we cannot just continue to negotiate with the Russians. That is insufficient. We, we need the Chinese to be part of the arms control negotiation as well. And a great deal of what we focused on was dragging the Chinese to the negotiating table. And you can start with baby steps. I mean, let's start with having a hotline. Let's start with having a way of communicating that, no, 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 that's a satellite going into space. That's not a nuclear attack, for instance. And, and these things really happened. The Norwegians many years ago, back in 95, 96, I forget exactly when, the Norwegians launched a, uh, a sounding rocket and the Russians went to the highest, you know, their version of DEFCON uh, because they thought it might be a nuclear strike. So even after decades and decades of risk reduction work and hotlines and risk reduction centers in the Department of State and the foreign ministry there, these things can happen. So the risk, um, my friend, unfortunately, I, I believe it's going up and going up substantially. We hear a lot of talk about America losing her military edge to China. And we've talked a little bit about this on the nuclear front, their, their rapid buildup. How do we fare compared to Russia? Are there any particular areas, particular weapon systems that they're pushing us on? Well, yes, um, in several categories. Um, although I believe in the aggregate, uh, the United States and our NATO allies uh, are more than capable of defending the alliance against armed aggression from the Russians. But there are definitely categories where the Russians have built uh, or are developing uh, systems that will give them a potentially a, a certainly a qualitative edge in conflict. And I'll just mention two sure. as examples, but they're, they're actually quite, quite many. Uh, the first is in these medium range ballistic and cruise missile systems with hypersonic warheads. Mm. So, and hypersonic simply, you know, as, as the word implies, uh, faster than the speed of sound. Um, but these are extremely fast uh, missiles, faster than anything uh, the United States has today. So the Russians signed on to this treaty called the Intermediate uh, Nuclear Forces Treaty, the INF Treaty, which prohibited the development of medium-range missiles, ground, ground-based missiles. And the Russians signed up to that treaty and then promptly began cheating on it. And they cheated on that treaty for more than a decade, secretly developing and then deploying multiple battalions of these nuclear-tipped medium-range missiles. We, as a law-abiding democracy, followed the rules. We abided by the terms of the treaty, and we didn't do any such development and certainly no deployment. And so now uh, that that treaty is dead because of the Russians, uh, you know, we're in a, a catch-up game. We are finally beginning to develop our own defensive missile systems, the Army and the Marine Corps, but we're behind. Uh, we're both, U.S. and Russia, way behind the Chinese in this respect because the Chinese never signed on to that treaty. Mm. And so they were free to develop, and they did, uh, more than, I believe, 18 different varieties of these missiles. And they've got these things pointed at Taiwan today. Another area where the Russians are ahead of the United States, uh, as are the Chinese, 
is in uh, the uh, in the ability to destroy satellites. Uh, and what the Russians and Chinese have both been doing, uh, most recently the Chinese, but uh, both countries have been doing some very, very dangerous and irresponsible things in space. And again, when you kind of boil it down to why, why, you know, around the dinner table would an American family talk about this? Well, just think about how dependent we are on satellites for everything from direct TV to uh, our navigation systems, our GPS systems in our cars to weather forecasting, I mean, all of it, to tsunami warnings. Um, and when you have two countries that are shattering satellites in space and throwing debris all over the place, including with what the Russians did, debris that could have taken down the International Space Station, uh, it, it's, it's both alarming uh, and, and you, we have to ask ourselves, well, you know, what are they going to do with these things and why are they developing them in the first place? Because we're not going down that path as a country. It kind of leads me into my next question. What does America need to do to prepare for the wars of the future? Are there specific capabilities or systems we need to be focused on? Well, you know, kind of as we talked at the outset, the, the, most, the most sure guarantee of peace is a strong defense. Yeah. And so what we as a nation must do is recommit ourselves to, to supporting our military and funding our military, getting our military focused on things that matter as opposed to critical race theory training uh, and the kind of stuff that they're doing right now, which is, 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 is ridiculous. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's equipping our military and working with our allies to, to give them capabilities too in, in areas that matter. The most urgent area, uh, that really matters in this context is our nuclear deterrent. Hmm. There has been not enough support for modernization of the deterrent. Uh, our Minutemen three missiles are uh, so old that they, they literally can't be extended further in terms of their lifespan. Hmm. Um, ditto for the, the, the B-2 bomber, which, you know, its first flight was back in the eighties. Um, so we're, we're talking about uh, 40 years or more of investment that hasn't been made, that is finally for the first time getting made, and we need to hold the Biden administration to it. After all, why would you negotiate any kind of arms control agreement if the United States is basically dilapidating itself out of the business? Uh, they have no incentive. Uh, but likewise, we need additional capabilities to deter aggression. I wish we had these medium range systems already in Europe today, these medium range missiles. It would be a major calculus, a major complicating factor for the Russians if you had uh, uh, firing brigades uh, with these missiles, conventional. They're not nuclear tipped, unlike what the Russians and Chinese have. Ours, ours are just conventional warheads. But if we had them in Poland and Romania, if we had them, they're mobile, right? So they're hard to track and we can put them in the Baltic countries, move them around. It really, I think, would cause Putin to think twice. So I think an investment, the, the most important thing is recommitting ourselves to proper investments in our defensive capabilities and those of our allies. Yeah. Um, last question for you. More of a personal question, an experience question. Uh, you've held multiple positions that require intense, high-stakes negotiations, right? Negotiating nuclear weapons with the Russians and the Chinese, it doesn't get, the stakes don't get much higher than that. What kind of advice do you have about negotiating, either specific to foreign policy or not? 
Well, I think um, great question, and I don't really have a ready answer for you, Nino. I can give you a few observations from from years of doing different kinds of negotiations. Um, but I think first and foremost, you need to be um, you need to be a straight talker, and you need to be crystal clear to the point of bluntness. Hmm. Um, uh, so that nothing gets lost in the translation. Literally, I mean. Um, secondly, when it matters most, you're typically negotiating with an autocratic or dictatorial regime sitting across the table from you. And you need to understand that there is no such thing in their mind as getting to yes. Hmm. And so people who approach negotiation from the standpoint, uh, from the perspective that, well, if we could only grow the size of the pie, uh, you will routinely find that those individuals, um, uh, if they are able to cut a deal at all, they cut a bad deal on behalf of the American people. The final point is you have to recognize what leverage is, how to create leverage, uh, and how to uh, create the impression of leverage when you're dealt a pretty bad hand of cards. Uh, and so uh, that may be the single most important thing is the willingness to use leverage uh, in, in ways that advance your interests and at ways that disadvantage your adversary. So those are just some, some basic off the cuff thoughts there. Well, and they're still great. Marshall, I know you're busy. You have a lot of stuff to think about, a lot of stuff to work on right now. So thank you so much for taking the time and joining us today on Madison's Notes. Thanks for having me, Nino. It's good to talk to you again. Well, there you have it, Madisonians. Marshall Billingsley on nuclear weapons, Ukraine, and the future of deterrence. I couldn't think of anyone better to walk us through these issues than Marshall, whose wealth of experience and knowledge on these sorts of things is second to none. We'll bring this episode to a close with a reminder to please leave us a five-star rating on iTunes and be sure to recommend the show to your family and friends. Thanks as always for your support, and I hope to have you back with us next time, here on Madison's Notes.